A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. If it's done with a strong level of community engagement and these products are planned with a strong level of community engagement, we think groups can roll into a crowdfunding campaign and be set up for success there. On this episode, I'm speaking with Jonathan Burke. Since 2016, he served as director at Detroit-based placemaking startup Patronicity and their new placemaking advisory firm, Bench Consulting, which supports hundreds of community-driven placemaking projects across the country. He's also the co-founder of Retail Reimagined, an organization leveraging creative collaborations and innovative solutions to bring new vibrancy to vacant storefront spaces and main streets. Jonathan is a placemaker and new urbanist in every sense of the word, with a voracious appetite for studying and learning about new methods of community and economic development around the world. His focus remains on building vibrant communities that foster connectivity and creativity that support thriving, healthy downtowns small business ecosystems and communities. He also currently sits on the local advisory board of Leading Cities, a global leader in smart city solutions, city diplomacy, and collaboration advancing sustainability and resilient city strategies and technologies. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. So I really like to begin transforming cities with kind of a, a stroll down memory lane, so to speak. So I want to know for the listeners, for myself, where you grew up, big family, small family, what was your uh, upbringing like? Sure. I grew up in a small family. I'm an only child. I grew up about 15 miles as the crow flies from downtown Boston, a small suburb called Swampscott, Massachusetts, about 14,000 people. I think my graduating class was about 200. So it, it sounds like a Sort of small Midwestern town, but it's a really dense, compact suburb of Boston in comparison. Yeah. One of the things I wrote down in my notes when we spoke a couple of times earlier was that you mentioned it was kind of like Halloween uh, quarter of the year. <laughs> what, what was that all about? So I, I grew up, so Swampscott geographically is located the town over from Salem. So we share a border with Salem, Marblehead, and Lynn. And Salem, certainly from a financial standpoint, maximizes the witch city moniker and the <laughs> Salem Halloween festivities. I mean, it's earlier and earlier every year. It might be July 4th every year that it actually starts and it finishes uh, about November 1st. There you go. So. <laughs> it's kind of like Christmas comes early, but rather Halloween comes early and stays late a little bit. Yeah, it's it's great. It's fun. I mean, I, I love Salem as a city. I mean, I don't think I appreciated it enough from a sort of urban planning and urbanist standpoint when I grew up, um, but really a really beautiful sort of old historic New England downtown that is a tourist destination for Halloween. But I think even beyond that, it's just a tourist destination for sort of the vibrancy and culture of the city itself. So what was your town like growing up? What was the city structure like, so to speak? 
Yeah, so no city structure, uh, small town. There was no downtown. There was really no main street to speak of. Very much a bedroom community to Boston, which is sort of what many communities in that they call it the 128, 495, which are the two highways that surround Boston, the 128, 495 belts. Most of those communities now are just bedroom communities for the city of Boston. So really quiet during the day. A couple restaurants scattered around town and our sort of commercial center is a really horrific series of strip malls that have a lot of big chain restaurants and stores in them. So I think you mentioned, was it Panera Bread and kind of the <laughs> the classics? <laughs> yeah, it's I mean Panera Bread, there's Bertucci's Pizza, there's an Olympia Sports as Stop and Shop, there's Marshall's and a TJ Maxx and a Home Goods down there. Oh, Staples. Perfect. Uh, EMS. I mean, pretty much your standard, like you go to a strip mall in any city USA and that's what you're going to find. So so did you find yourself at some point wanting to like get out of that bubble as you were growing up? Did you feel like you were becoming aware of that? Or what was your kind of mindset as you were getting into the kind of high school, college years? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't think I really knew anything different. I think a lot of kids who grew up in the suburbs don't really know what else is out there. Like, I always hear this from friends and I've met folks who have raised their kids in in New York City and in Boston and other sort of larger metropolitan areas and downtowns. And they've always said like they're thrilled they raised their children in big cities because it sort of gives them a perspective on society, culture, people who are very different than you and just a world perspective that you don't get in a suburb. Um, so yeah, pretty sheltered suburban life as a kid. Um, I don't think I really knew what else was out there. <laughs> Even being so close to Boston, I really never spent a ton of time coming into the city. Sure. So until really after college was when I spent most of my time um, in the city. I finished, went to college in an even smaller suburban town in Connecticut probably even less to do than in Swampscott. <laughs> and then came back to Boston uh, about a month after I graduated college in 2008. And I have been living in the city of Boston for 12 years. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, what, what was that um, awakening like for you? I mean, <laughs> it's going from small town to small town and then jumping over to the into the deep end with Boston. What, what was that like? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I studied journalism in college. Um, so I think that sort of had made me very curious about just everything, right? You're near a journalist, you kind of pick a subject and you just try to learn everything you can about it. And you're always learning about something new. I went to law school after college and started that about a year after I moved into Boston. And the whole time I was sort of learning the law and getting my feet wet there, I was also sort of learning about this whole new world of urban living and urban environments um, and city living just started reading everything I could about that from Jeff Speck's Walkable City to Jane Jacobs' Life and Death, the Great American City. Janet Sadek Khan, who was the former transportation planner in New York City, now uh, director of NACDO and Bloomberg uh, Associates, but her book, Street Fight, Charles Montgomery's Happy City, and just reading all of these books about, I'd say most of them were new urbanism sort of teachings, but reading all of these books and having no formal training in this space except for a journalism background and being sort of curious about that world, really just became enamored with this whole idea of why we have cities, right? Why we built cities in the first place, why the ancient Greeks and Romans lived in such dense settings and started to take a look through a different lens. I think when I was living in Boston and walking around the city and biking around the city, uh, taking the subway, going to different events, going to different classes, speakers, and really sort of trying to say, okay, we're not doing this I think, right, right. We're not doing this in a way that's sustainable. We're not doing this in a way that 
is sort of leading to the best quality of life for residents. We're not making cities as walkable as they could be. We're not making them safe for walkability and bikeability. We're also, and especially Boston in particular, is not doing this in a very equitable way. Certain neighborhoods are receiving much more investment than others. Certain neighborhoods are predominantly white, predominantly minority, predominantly black, African-American, Hispanic. Mm-hmm. It really runs the gamut. And I think Boston in particular, among many North American cities, has a real problem with disinvestment in some neighborhoods, um, both from a transit standpoint, but also from a new housing and a housing um, affordability standpoint as well. One of the notes I, I jotted down when we first spoke was you said that you were thinking to yourself, why does this work or why does it not work both in a main street setting, but then kind of at the larger city scale? And I'm curious, you know, you came from small towns, you know, smaller school to Boston, to the big city. You were working in law or at least studying law at first. Was there some sort of moment that made you kind of find interest in the urban side of things? Like what was urban life, urban planning to you? And and why did you suddenly dive into it? You know, it's a great question. I don't know if I can pinpoint one single event. I think if I had the aha moment where I was like, this is what I need to do. um, And this is just what I'm really, truly passionate about. It was definitely reading Jeff Speck's Walkable City and just getting into the really the real nitty gritty of how having sort of car oriented and car centric living in America and how we've sort of sprawled our way out of dense urban settings has really just been detrimental to us as a society, financially, economically, equitably, our own personal health and well-being. I mean, folks who live in a car oriented environment and car oriented culture have a much higher rate of different health issues as opposed to folks that live in cities. So it definitely opened my eyes to sort of say, okay, how is our built environment affecting this and what are we doing and what could we be doing better? So that was sort of the aha moment. From there, I think it's just been a matter of gradual learning and gradual changes. And I think every day in this world, in this work, I mean, you probably can say the same thing in a lot of professions too. I mean, if you're not learning every single day, you're falling behind. And especially in the last three months with uh, COVID-19, how that's changing uh, urban living and and urban environments. I think that's just an even bigger reason to say you you have to be learning something new every single day. I mean, between COVID and the disruptions that's caused, between some of the the Black Lives Matter movements and, and sort of opening everybody's eyes to things, whether or not they thought they saw things properly or not. Um, I think it's opened everybody's eyes to kind of see what we do and how we build cities in a different light and how we disenfranchise folks and how we just set folks in for a lifetime of poverty and a lifetime of health and equity. Yeah. Well, let's set the stage for kind of how you transitioned entirely into this space. And just to get us started there, you started in Boston um, in law school, and then you ended up working in law for about three years. I think that's right. And then you kind of, you kind of, I don't know if you call it pivoted or kind of on the side also started your own consulting firm. Walk us through those two sort of in parallel moments. And then maybe that kind of transitionary time where you ended up just kind of doing consulting full-time. Sure. Um, so the transition was actually great. I mean, I worked for a law firm right at a college that was, if that's what I wanted to do, I, I think that would have been a great setting and an environment for me. I mean, everybody there was really great to work with, accommodating. I was doing mass tort litigation. So a lot of uh, injury cases and drug defect cases, pharmaceutical defect cases, those sorts of things. After a year or two, I realized quickly that that is just not the life I wanted. Sort of had some conversations with some of my colleagues there. The managing partner at that firm at the time that I was at, this is 
probably back in 2015, I think. Uh, so five, 2014, late 2014, early 2015. It was really accommodating and, and gave me sort of a long window of time to start moving out and, and making some of my next moves. Um, and I knew I couldn't get into what I wanted to do and I continued in that route working in personal injury law. So started my own practice, kind of taking that legal training and supporting small businesses and developers and navigating um, government, right? Navigating permitting and entitlements and zoning and, and figuring out how you can kind of get these projects built and done in different communities across Eastern Massachusetts. Mm. And you said you posed a question to yourself and that was, was there a way to build the city differently? Kind of at this point in your career, you were feeling like there's a lot of catering to the car, catering to these, you know, kind of quote, ivory towers. Did that really shape your personal mission as you were getting that consulting firm off the ground? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of the work I was trying to do at that point was supporting development in sort of these more infill types of projects. So not building these large luxury towers in downtown, not necessarily building single family homes in the suburbs, but trying to find the gaps of empty lots and vacant spaces in our cities and, and surrounding suburbs around Boston where we could start building some more transit-oriented walkable style developments and really helping to support some of those initiatives. There's, I think most cities around the country, from what I've seen, I think it's it's on the coast that has this worse, but there's just a strong opposition to multifamily housing, especially as you get away from the urban cores. And that's just, it's deep-rooted. It's been in place for a number of decades. So I think trying to figure out support around messaging for how you get some of these projects to receive more support from the community with some of the work that I was doing very early on. What do you feel like you were doing differently than other consultants or planners at the time you were getting your feet wet and and taken off? Not billing hourly was one. So <laughs> flat rate fee was it for everybody. I mean, I think I did that because I hated that aspect of legal life. Uh, whenever I, I usually didn't have to do that. Whenever I did have to do it, it was just felt like it was a waste of time for everybody involved. So for my own sanity and their sanity and, and our own sort of comfort, and we knew this was going to be a crazy expensive project, I just set a flat fee for most of my engagements. I think it was, it was the sort of the passion about the work too, was definitely something that resonated to me. And I spent in my last year working at the law firm. And then in the first year I started my own practice, I spent three days a week, every week trying to meet somebody new. And they always say the strategy was you meet somebody new in your industry, and then you ask them who they can connect you with. And I was just doing that. And it was just sort of multiplying and snowballing and just constantly trying to learn at the same time as trying to get my name out there. So learn the pain points, learn what people are doing, learn some of the innovations that were happening out there. And then also just really try to kind of position myself, I guess, to kind of say, okay, look, maybe I don't have the experience that other folks have in this world, but I'll do it for a lot less and I'll do it a lot harder. Yeah. And that, that clearly paid off because in 2016, you joined a company called Patronicity. And I'm excited to talk about this and how the listeners learn more about, about the company. Tell us about that start, how you got introduced to them and, and sort of what that looked like for you early on. And if you don't mind, give us a rundown of, of what the company is all about. Sure. Yeah. So Patronicity was founded in Detroit, Michigan in about 2014, 2015. Uh, at that time, they were supporting small community development projects, public space improvement work across the city of Detroit. And I think for anybody who's at all familiar with Detroit during that time, it was a lot of disinvestment, decades of disinvestment. Suburban flight uh, had really taken a toll on the city. And what you had was a city that was sort of growing and focusing on 
the seven square mile downtown core and reinvesting in that area, well, you still had about 120 square miles of space that was just not being paid any attention to. I mean, literally, I, I never forget my first trip out there, saw houses just collapsed into the street, blocking streets and sidewalks that had looked like it had been there for years. And coming from Boston, that's not something you see. I mean, you see a house that collapsed in the street, it's going to be a headline news story and it's going to be cleaned up in two hours. So it was really eye-opening experience to kind of see that. But I think it also gave residents a perspective of, okay, we need to lift ourselves up by the bootstraps and do this work ourselves. And I think that's what this program initially in Michigan, Public Spaces, Community Places, which was supported by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, was really geared towards doing, was supporting those grassroots community-driven projects, the urban gardens, urban agriculture projects, urban farm stands, converting back alleys into pedestrian strips that had space for outdoor dining at restaurants. A lot of these things that we're, we're talking about today as a response to COVID were being done in Detroit four or five years ago to try and reclaim these spaces, to make them vibrant spaces that people wanted to spend time in and stay in as opposed to just quickly walk past or drive through. So our program in Michigan was set up to provide up to $50,000 in matching grant funds from the Michigan Economic Development Corporation to be matched by crowdfunding dollars raised by the individual groups in those communities. To date, I think that program's done, I don't want to give the exact numbers because I don't have to talk, I have it off the top of my head, but I think it's it's got to be close to almost $10 million now in five years in both direct crowdfunding investment, but also matching investment funds from the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. It's probably over 10 million at this point. And all of those are directly invested into hundreds of communities across the state that saw an opportunity and a couple of residents said, we want to try to reclaim the space and we're going to make it happen. Really sort of grassroots, really sort of creative projects. And really, I think that the key there is that it allows residents to feel a sense of ownership over their projects and over their community spaces. So yes, you pay your taxes. Yes, you pay your property taxes if you own property. Um, and those funds are going towards fixing the sewers and the sidewalks and paying teachers and police and fire. And all those things are obviously really important for a functioning community. But you don't really know what your dollar went towards. So I think that some of the beauty behind this and a lot of the feedback that we received from folks is that well, I gave my $50 donation to this park improvement project. And I gave $50 that went directly towards that bench. And I can see that tangible product of my investment. And you hear all these stories from communities that say, well, we have residents who just come by every Thursday and clean the park themselves um, because they want to make sure it stays beautiful. And for other types of urban art projects and, and those sorts of things, I mean, you hear responses constantly from communities in Michigan and also in Massachusetts where we've expanded the program for the last four years. But residents who um, have really said they have found sort of a new pride for their hometown that they didn't realize they had before. And part of it is the physical beautification of these communities, but a bigger chunk of it is the community rallying around one of these causes. And I think the physical elements that you can see are great and that makes for a vibrant downtown, a vibrant Main Street. But as we're learning, especially during COVID, communities' vibrancy doesn't come from the built environment, doesn't come from the physical spaces. Those are just sort of the conduits that allow the community to gather and come together. And that's where your sort of community vibrancy comes from. So lifting up the hood of the organization then, how do you structure the team? Is it is it sort of a traditional structure? Is it more of a flat structure? Do you consider yourselves a startup regionally, nationally? How does all that work? And how do you kind of, how do you all sort of <laughs> click together? It seems, seems pretty complicated. I would say we're pretty horizontal in structure. We have two co-founders. We have different regional directors across the country. We have marketing folks. We have user experience and developers out in California. 
but yeah, we're I would say a very horizontal structure where it's it's a very upstart culture as well. If you have an idea for something you want to change, propose it and run with it. We recently launched a, a place making consulting practice a few months ago, an advisory firm that was a direct result of a conversations we were having internally about how do we sort of separate our larger programs from some of the other work that we do as part of those programs. Um, and I can get into that a little bit later. But yeah, definitely regional or a horizontal structure, regionally focused, but with a national angle. I think we having teams on both coasts and in the Midwest really allows us to have a foothold in each region in the country. Um, I think the only regions we don't have any footholds in right now would be the uh, Southeast and North Pacific Northwest. We've worked in to some extent in, I'd say, 20 to 25 states across the country, and then also um, some programs up in Canada as well. And we've actually even had a, a small program over in Scotland last year. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com blueprint. So a, a couple notes that I wrote down on my end yeah. with regards to the types of projects that are proposed and ultimately funded really have to do with creating active public spaces, you know, crowdfunding that really has to do with placemaking, growth in the community, and, and so on. How would you describe, if, if that was a good starting point, the types of projects that you see most, most commonly and maybe the types of projects that you really advocate for on the platform to be funded? Yeah, it's it's a hard question because I think to touch on your last point, the advocating for projects to be funded is something we don't really necessarily want to do or want to be involved with. I think if you've learned anything from this work over the last four years, or at least if I've learned anything from this work over the last four years, the projects that are the most successful, the most impactful, and the ones that are in terms of crowdfunding are able to raise the most crowdfunding dollars from the most donors, which are two metrics we like to track as opposed to just dollars. It's the ones that come from the community, right? The grassroots, they come from residents who got together and said, we really need some kind of community gathering space. There's was, was one really good story from our first year in, in Massachusetts I always like to share, but it was community just west of Boston who, it's a suburban community, they have a main street, but there's really no central gathering place out there. They had seen some examples of sort of larger scale innovative public spaces like the lawn on D in Boston and just the creative uses of empty lots. And they had one of these empty lots in downtown and got together, started planning for this project. We were, we're giving them different examples and different projects that we've seen in our travels too, to kind of get this off the ground and started really hearing stories from the community as we were starting to plan the fundraising, the shooting the crowdfunding video about how folks in town had missed that feeling of having a place to see your neighbors because the local diner had closed a couple of years before. And all of a sudden, this campaign in the first couple of days just took off like wildfire. Everybody was donating. They raised probably 150%, 160% of their funding goal and were able to expand the project beyond what they had even hoped for at the beginning. So now 
that's been on the ground for probably three years now. It's a outdoor little town square space with grass, uh, some bench swings, some old shipping pallets that were turned into outdoor tables. And there's a small, a new shed that was retrofitted to serve as a retail space for local uh, vendors, makers, restaurants, uh, beer gardens and breweries have popped up in there occasionally too. Yoga classes are taught there now. Some mommy and me groups have been teaching little infant classes out there during the days in the summer. Um, so really just become sort of this, this central hub of the community and have heard stories. There's a couple quotes in some magazines in Boston about how folks drove by on a housing tour and saw the community out there. And that was sort of the clinching factor as to why they decided to move to the town because they saw this. Oh, wow. Oh, that's very cool. Well, that actually brings up another question I have that, that I think I would be silly to overlook because it's something that we face in our work. It's it's not necessarily a, a huge hurdle, but it, it is, I think, a hurdle nonetheless when it comes to digital technology, modern technology, and, and clearly your platform leverages uh, the web, it leverages modern tools, as opposed to say more boots on the ground, door to door, you know, paper and pencil approach, if you will. How important have you found that piece of technology to be to the success of the business? And if any, have you seen pushback or concerns or difficulties you know, actually understanding this kind of modern technology, this web-based platform? Yeah, it's different in every community. Um, I think we've worked in cities as large as uh, Boston and Detroit, and then cities as small as uh, North Adams, Massachusetts, and Orange, Mass, which has a few thousand residents. I think we've had our smallest community probably has a few hundred people in upstate Michigan. So you run into folks who have different levels of comfort with technology. And I think you're, you're still, I mean, we've not received, we, we give out surveys at the end of these campaigns to folks and try to get feedback as to how the campaign went for them, the ease of using the platform. And for the most part, the feedback's usually positive. Um, we haven't really had anybody come back to us and say that the community just couldn't use the platform. I think we have made it, we, we have made it so that if folks are not comfortable giving to these campaigns online, they can give a cash or check donation. And we usually do provide an address for folks to mail that over to. And that can then be counted on the back end um, and easily added to the platform as a as the same as an online donation would be. So we try to bridge that gap and kind of take that into consideration. But for the most part, I mean, it's it's a fairly intuitive platform in terms of ease of use. I mean, once you make your first donation and your information is saved on the platform, it's a real easy opportunity to come back with like three clicks to make a donation. So it's, it's fair, the functionality, I'm obviously I'm biased, but I think it's pretty... Pretty easy to use and pretty good. And we're always making improvements and changes. We have a great development team and a great user experience team in California that's been working to just slowly make changes. Sometimes they're changes that we see the need for. Sometimes they're changes that our partners request. But every time there's a lot of thought put into all of these changes that come to the platform and nothing you see on there is done willy-nilly, right? There's always some reason as to why something is a, co- is a certain color or why something is located where it is on the page. Mm. Well, so tell me a little bit more about that onboarding process then. So I'm uh, Jane Doe or Bob Doe or whatever, and I come in and I say, hey, you know, I think we need this spot in the community. And, you know, some of my neighbors feel the same way. And, you know, maybe I have a few people behind me and I want to get this thing off the ground. You know, kind of really specifically, how does that work? Who gets in touch? Do I do it? Does it all just sort of happen on the platform? You know, maybe you could give us an example of something simple or silly that would paint that picture. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, 
a lot of, I think most folks first touch with us comes through starting a project page and we've made it intentionally very quick to start a project page. All you need to do is enter an estimate of how much money you want to raise in your email. I mean, that's pretty much in your name and, and the project name. And that's pretty much all that we require. So once you get that started, we'll reach out to you. And that's typically where our conversations with folks will start from the platform. On the flip side, we do have people who just reach out, will call me directly or email me or one of the teammates or one of my teammates directly and request, hey, I have this space in town and we really want to try to do something here. Or, you know, we've been looking to try to create some what we call sticking sticking points in downtown or places that people kind of stop, stay while they're walking around. So folks will come in either of those routes. Um, and then typically we'll decide sort of where they are in the process. If folks are at a position where they need some help ideating different project ideas, we try to work with them to get a sense of, okay, what are some of the community demands you're seeing? What are the community needs? What have folks been telling you in the past? Um, we can kind of point them towards some different resources and guides that can help them collect some user feedback as part of our programs um, to get a sense for that. And then we can give them examples. So we'll start working with them to kind of say, okay, well, based on that, we've seen X, Y, and Z project work well in these different communities across the country. We never present that as something to say, well, let's copy that and plug and play that in your community. But I think there's elements of different projects that help jive people's creativity. I think sometimes creativity for what's possible in public realm isn't really... It takes a lot of getting outside of someone's comfort zone to really sort of see what else could be um, in a space they may have known for a number of years or decades and to think about it in a different light. So a lot of times it is helpful to show people the transformation in another community. I think one of the big examples of that is back alleys of buildings. Uh, I think most people just say, oh, this is a wasted space, so we're never going to use that and don't even give it a second thought. But if you're looking right now, especially if you're looking for a place to do outdoor dining and you can't close down a street and you don't have enough width in the street to put parklets or streeteries out there, a great option is to temporary, temporarily close down a section of a, a back alley and turn into a really nice plaza. We've seen some spaces across the country that have gone from these ugly back alleyways to destinations that people are actually coming to specifically to go grab a drink or a bite to eat at that restaurant while sitting in that back alley. Yeah. So you work through kind of like helping them with ideation, the ideation process, you give them suggestions, maybe some recommendations, and then you Sounds like you get to a point where you say, okay, like this is the thing, this is the the nugget that we're gonna work from. And then is it from there that you sort of launch the the formal campaign or or what's the next step? Yeah, it depends. So with our program partners in different states, there's some requirements and we want to make sure groups have sort of thought about a budget for these projects. I mean, obviously the budgets at this point are estimates, but we want to make sure that groups have sort of thought about a budget, put that in place, and we can kind of help them as we have budgets for a lot of our older projects. So we can kind of put some of that information together. There's also a number of different resources in different communities. We've worked with Boston Society of Landscape Architects, Boston Architectural College students to actually help plan and design some of the projects across Massachusetts. We've worked with students at UMass Amherst. There's, I think, RPI helped us with a project at Western Mass, which was designing underpass lights. And there's other design firms that are really willing to give and lend some um, support when these projects get beyond our ability um, and need some real sort of technical expertise to get involved. So from there, once we have the sort of project outline and the rough budget estimate, we typically would present those to our, our partner sponsors. Once that's approved, we'll get a video shot telling the story of the project, the importance of the project for the community. And then we help the group plan and launch their crowdfunding campaigns. 
and part of the reason why it's great to have us involved, I think, from start to finish, is that we can really make sure these groups are going through that community process and engaging the right stakeholders early on, which obviously should be done in every community project. But I think if you do it right here, especially where you're crowdfunding for it, it almost makes the crowdfunding campaign a much easier lift once folks are already bought, built and engaged. Because those folks who have started planning with you are now your your megaphone to help push this campaign out when it launches. So is the sky the limit for raising money? Could they just raise infinite amounts of money? Are, are there caps on it? How does that work? Yes, yeah, so every one of our programs has had a cap of $50,000. We've had some smaller programs that had smaller caps, but for the most part, our big state programs have had a $50,000 cap for each community. That goal is typically exceeded. So I think on average, at least in our program in Massachusetts, communities will raise about 125% of their goal. So those funds aren't matched, but those extra dollars go a long way in kind of expanding on these projects. A lot of communities will use that money to kind of seed a maintenance and support fund for the next few years, knowing that things might break or things might need to be replaced. And we see time and again that these projects are iterative and I think people kind of see how their residents use it, make changes based on that, make changes based on feedback. I mean, that's sort of the beauty of having these sort of lower dollar projects is that you can react to user feedback very easily. Yeah. One piece I want to pivot into here before we start to wrap up is something you alluded to earlier, which is this side project, side consulting firm that was started as a spinoff to do some of this other work called Bench Consulting. I think you said it was launched just earlier this year, kind of as COVID-19 was you know, hitting the, the world, hitting the nation, certainly. Tell us a little bit about that. What prompted getting that started? And I'm, I'm sure you see it as a complement to what Patronicity is doing. How does it all fit together? Sure. Yeah. So we were ready to hit go probably on March 10th of this year. We had spent pretty much the good, most of the first quarter of this year, really trying to get things tidied up on the website and our branding around that and had done a lot of work to get that ready. And then all of a sudden, obviously, things changed pretty dramatically in mid March. So we put that on hold, kind of took a step back, reassessed where things were. And we've we pivoted a bit with Bench. Um, I think so. Bench originally was started as a lot of the communities that we work with in a number of states and our larger programs. We would spend a lot of time on sort of the ideation and looking at different space and kind of trying to help communities get creative with how they use space, how they receive feedback from the community when they are planning one of these projects, but also how they plan and, and ideate outside of the box beyond the traditional flower pots and, and banners along Main Street. Essentially, what we were looking to do with Bench was to try to help those groups separate from our larger grant programs, which typically are not as accessible to a number of states, and they typically are a bigger lift for different groups to bring on. So for communities and states that we don't have one of those grant programs who are interested in working with us, it was a way for us to kind of come back down and meet them where they were to kind of help them get off the ground. And, and from our perspective, like you just said, if it's done with a strong level of community engagement and these projects are planned with a strong level of community engagement, we think groups can roll into a crowdfunding campaign and be set up for success there to fund those projects. So there is obviously, there's some tie-in with patronicity with our bench work. It's essentially just an entity of, of patronicity. How that's changed a bit since the coronavirus, I think we've pivoted our entire suite of services. All of our work has changed since March. We stood up a, a program at patronicity to help support small businesses. We've raised over a million and a half dollars in crowdfunding donations across five states at this point. And those were all for direct grants to small businesses, small 
mostly Main Street-based businesses, sort of consumer-facing Main Street businesses. We surprised ourselves, I think, at how willing people were to give a grant to a for-profit business, which has been great to see. I think you you get the sense that people are really interested in supporting these Main Street districts. So we are still running that program. Uh, we're running one now in Michigan with the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, who's providing up to $5,000 in matching funds. So a business can raise $5,000. They can sell gift cards through that to raise that $5,000. And then the state MEDC will match that funding. Beyond that, I think, and how that sort of ties in with our work at Bench, space is at a premium um, in most cities and towns. And I think when you start talking about supporting our small businesses, our restaurants who have been closed for the last three or four months, how do you get creative with setting up space for outdoor dining, setting up space for outdoor retail and as we go through the summer months, and I think people start to get a better handle on where we are with the coronavirus, start doing some small-scale events on Main Street. People aren't traveling. A lot of people aren't working in an office anymore. So they're spending more time in their own home communities. So how do you set up downtown and Main Street to prepare to bring those people back to do small-scale events, um, farmers markets, farm stands, musics and festivals, also sort of deciding whether or not an open street or a shared street or a streetery or a parklet or expanded bike lanes or bike infrastructure, widened sidewalk is right for your community. So really kind of fully gearing our bench work to kind of say, okay, how do we get Main Street not just reopened, but how do we make Main Street the vibrant, successful place we know they all can be? Even in my impression to take back some of the lost commercial opportunity that malls and shopping malls took from them a decade ago. Well, you've already started to talk about this, but I was curious before we hopped off what your take was on the coronavirus and, and, and post-coronavirus time periods. I mean, I think that's still all unfolding, to be fair, but you know what you're thinking and seeing and maybe planning for with patronicity, I think you've sort of started to touch on that a bit. And maybe what's happening next or what you see coming next. Any insight or, or kind of early thoughts on, on what, what this looks like in the second half of 2020 and beyond? So I saw a great presentation uh, from a friend of mine, Che Anderson, who works for the, the city of Worcester, Massachusetts yesterday. And he gave a, a PowerPoint slide and it was just the shrugging emoji. And I think for the most part, nobody knows, right? Nobody knows if the virus is going to be over in a month or over in a year or over in hopefully not more than a year, but 18 months. But I think we need to kind of prepare with that year, at least time frame in mind. Um, and communities are, I think, starting to prepare for that. So that means... Even if restaurants are opening indoor service and stores are opening indoor service, people aren't coming indoors. So how do you gear your main street to be open and supportive of those customers who want to come back, but don't feel comfortable spending a long time indoors with other people? So with Bench and with Patronicity, our, our support there has been at least immediately for kind of stopgap funding to kind of help support and stand up small businesses during the shutdown. I think where we see that come in next is helping communities raise money through these campaigns to actually reinvent Main Street or reinvent their downtowns. How do you take that parking lot, the municipal parking lot in downtown and turn it into an outdoor theater or an outdoor marketplace? Think of all the things that we're used to doing indoors, shopping malls, movie theaters, performances at playhouses and opera houses and, and symphonies. And how do you take that outside? So how do you get really creative with where commerce is happening for the next year? It's going to be great in Boston for the next few months. But once you get past October, it's going to get cold and snowy. What do you do? right? And I don't think, and I always tell people this, but I don't think that 
we necessarily, we get a bad rep that we just shut ourselves in from December to March in New England. And to an extent, it's true. But I think it's it's less of a people want to be shut indoors. I think it's just more of a mentality thing where there's nothing to do anymore. So we're going to lock ourselves in. Myself and a number of my colleagues and friends in the city have always thought that there is a desire for more outdoor activities during the winter. And I think we're going to try to see this year what the stomach is for that. I think we're going to have to see more outdoor events um, and help communities plan to extend outdoor dining as late as possible into the year to see communities plan uh, midwinter outdoor events. So with with Bench, I mean, our work is going to be directly in response to some of those desires and some of those interests. And I think getting further along past the fall, you might see a number of main streets start to see businesses close. I, I know we're hearing a lot of folks say that once PPP loans sort of lapse in September, the fall may be an interesting time for a lot of businesses who weren't able to make any revenue back during the summer months and are, are still sort of only making 50 to 75% of what they were making before the crisis. So there's going to be a lot of interesting things to be done in the fall, getting creative with retail stores. Like I said a few minutes ago, I mean, I'm a firm believer and I was I wrote about this last fall, but I'm a firm believer that the shopping mall is a dying breed. I think it's sort of heading by the wayside in a number of different places around the country. I know there was a survey out last year that said a third of malls will close by 2030. And I just saw a report on CNBC last week that said a third will close by 2021. So that's clearly been sped up by the crisis. The desire for people to kind of have more of an experience as opposed to just shopping is a key reason why I think that Main Street has always been really positioned, well positioned to kind of harness that opportunity. And I think coming out of this crisis and even running through the rest of this crisis, Main Street's in a great position to really capture that. So supporting Main Street and kind of seeing how we can bring that vibrancy and and bring the indoors outdoors for a while, but also what can we do with those empty storefronts that inevitably do happen? How can we use those as local economic regenerators for future small businesses and for future uh, local economic growth and to help build economic wealth at a local level, which will be hugely necessary after this crisis. Jonathan, I really appreciate your time today and and sharing all of your insight. I want to end on a final question here that is one of my favorite questions because kind of taps into who you're keeping your eyes on, what you're reading, and and kind of what's knocking around in your head. So tell the listeners who else we should be paying attention to that you really feel like are doing great work, inspiring work. Could be a person, could be a group. What does that list look like? Who should we go check out? So uh, I hate singling out a few people. Some of the folks that I've been a huge follower of and a fan of, like I said, I'm sort of self-taught in this world. I never went to planning school. I never went to architecture school. So I've, everything I've learned, I've learned from books and I've learned from just reading about other people's work and other people's projects. Recently, some great writing um, has been done by Bruce Katz in Brookings Institute, just researching sort of how cities are changing. Really interesting article a few weeks ago about Main Street Regenerators and how re- Main Street Regenerators can help sort of spur growth in our downtown cores. Jeff Speck, like I mentioned before, one of my inspirations for doing a lot of this work in his book, Walkable Cities, and he's recently written a new version of that too. Mike Lydon and Street Plans, who has been doing major pushes for rethinking how we use our streets for the last few years and been in this sort of group of folks that have always been looking at streets differently. And now when everybody says, why didn't we do outdoor dining before? We kind of say, well, we we tried and we told you so, but... (laughs) 
nobody wanted to get on board with taking away parking spaces until now. So, but Mike's phenomenal and his work is just really inspirational and creative. Jen Kiesman, who's the former uh, head planner of the city of Toronto, now is a consulting firm, but really innovative in her strategy around sort of large-scale transportation planning and getting creative with municipal budgets around that. Locally in Massachusetts, I mentioned Che Anderson before in the city of Worcester. He uh, helped start the powwow uh, mural festival in Worcester, but he's also working on a ton of different downtown redesigns and walkability walkability projects in the city of Detroit, or city of Detroit, city of Worcester that will really position Worcester to be a leader, I think, in this region in terms of local economy and uh, quality of life, which is something that's really been um, improving in, in our gateway cities across Massachusetts. Locally, again, Al Wilson, creator of Beyond Walls and somebody I've worked with for the last four years, which is a large scale mural festival. Gosh, there's so many folks in Massachusetts, I'm gonna forget them all. It's okay. We'll we'll um, we'll link as many of these as possible, sure. so listeners Great. can you know pop down to the show notes. You know, pop open four or five tabs and just and just kind of dive in. Just to say, I put together a list in the winter in December of folks that I follow on social media. I try to cut through the noise as much as possible. But some folks that I follow on social media that have always been posting really great information and updates in the space, or urbanists of Twitter, I call it. But if you're kind of looking to use social media in a way that's not ranting about politics, which I try not to do, <laughs> it's a great place to really learn from others in this world. Um, and I, I also wanted to just give in sort of some of her work, uh, Jay Pitter as well, who's the author of Subdivided uh, City Building in an Age of Hyperdiversity. I have not read the book yet, but I, it's high on my list as one of the next uh, books I need to get to. And she's been doing a lot of really great uh, research and, and writing and talks recently. Um, and it's, I think, an important time for everybody to take, especially in this urbanist, new urbanist space, to take the time to really learn about the sort of inherent racist policies that exist in a lot of our zoning and our planning work that we do every day that you may not even realize. So definitely some important work being done there. Um, and I know I forgot other folks Brent Tadarian, who's the former chief planner of Vancouver, Tadarian Urban Works is a great resource as well for different public space improvements. I'd be embarrassed if I didn't mention Carlos Moreno and Anne Hidalgo, who's the mayor of Paris, who are both working on some incredible projects in the city of Paris to create a 15-minute city. Um, and it's really sort of resonating with folks in the US, but really essentially it plans the idea of having everything you would need in your daily life, your health, your resources, your stores, your bars, your restaurants, your family, friends, connections, networks, public spaces within a 15 minute radius of your home um, without needing to get into a car or even public transit to get there. Um, and I'm sure I forgot a lot of folks on there and I apologize now, <laughs> but <laughs> that's okay. Well, let's let's roll that into the final point here of the podcast. And that is really to to roll out the red carpet for you and tell folks where to follow you, where to follow up with you, where to find you online, both websites and social media, just to tap into all this abundance of knowledge as well. So I appreciate you saying abundance of knowledge. I like that. That's <laughs> all going to go to my head. Um, so okay. <laughs> uh, for email, uh, the best email is just jonathan at patronicity.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at patronicity, P-A-T, R-O-N-I-C-I-T-Y. For Twitter, it's Berkey1, B-E-R-K-I-E, and then the number one. Really ashamed I couldn't get that Berkey handled seven years ago when I first started this. And then for more information on some of my work, it's at patronicity.com. 
and then benchconsulting.co to learn more about our placemaking advisory practice. Fantastic. Jonathan, super insightful podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you, Chris. It's been a great pleasure to join you today. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.